Today's read, The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. Chapter 3, How We Drifted Away from the Truth. How then did the education of the Negro take such a trend? The people who maintained schools for the education of certain Negroes before the Civil War were certainly sincere. And so were the missionary workers who went south to enlighten the freedmen after the results of that conflict had given the Negroes a new status. These earnest workers, however, had more enthusiasm than knowledge. They did not understand the task before them. This undertaking, too, was more of an effort toward social uplift than actual education. Their aim was to transform the Negroes, not to develop them. The freedmen who were to be enlightened were given little thought. For the best friends of the race, ill-taught themselves, followed the traditional curricula of the times, which did not take the Negro into consideration except to condemn or pity him. In geography, the races were described in conformity with the program of the usual propaganda to engender in whites a race hate of the Negro and in the Negroes contempt for themselves. A poet of distinction was selected to illustrate the physical features of the white race. A bedecked chief of a tribe, those of the red, a proud warrior, the brown, a prince, the yellow, and a savage with a ring in his nose, the black. The Negro, of course, stood at the foot of the social ladder. The description of the various parts of the world was worked out according to the same plan. The parts inhabited by the Caucasian were treated in detail. Less attention was given to the yellow people, still less to the red, very little to the brown, and practically none to the black race. Those people who are far removed from the physical characteristics of the Caucasians or who do not materially assist them in the domination of or exploitation of others were not mentioned except to be belittled or decried. From the teaching of science, the Negro was likewise eliminated. The beginnings of science in various parts of the Orient were mentioned, but the Africans' early advancement in this field was omitted. Students were not told that ancient Africans of the interior knew sufficient science to concoct poisons for our heads, to mix durable colors for paintings, to extract metals from nature and refine them for development in the industrial arts. Very little was said about the chemistry and the method of Egyptian embalming, which was the product of the mixed breeds of Northern Africa now known in the modern world as colored people. 
In the study of language in school, pupils were made to scoff at the Negro dialect as some peculiar possession of the Negro, which they should despise, rather than directed to study the background of this language as a broken down African tongue. In short, to understand their own linguistic history, which is certainly more important for them than the study of French phonetics or historical Spanish grammar. To the African language, as such no attention was given, except in case of the preparation of traders, missionaries, and public functionaries to exploit the natives. This number of persons, thus trained of course, constituted a small fraction, hardly deserving attention. From literature, the African was excluded altogether. He was not supposed to have expressed any thought worth knowing. The philosophy in the African proverbs and in the rich folklore of that continent was ignored to give preference to that developed on the distant shores of the Mediterranean. Most missionary teachers of the freedmen, like most men of our time, had never read the interesting books of travel in Africa and had never heard of the Tariq es Sudan. In the teaching of fine arts, these instructors usually started with Greece by showing how that art was influenced from without, but they omitted the African influence, which scientists now regard as significant and dominant in early Hellas. They failed to teach the student the Mediterranean melting pot with the Negroes from Africa bringing their wares, their ideas, and their blood therein to influence the history of Greece, Carthage, and Rome. Making desire father to the thought, our teachers either ignored these influences or endeavored to belittle them by working out theories to the contrary. The bias did not stop at this point, for it invaded the teaching of the pref- teaching of the professions. Negro law students were told that they belonged to the most criminal element in the country, and an effort was made to justify the procedure in the seats of injustice where law was interpreted as being one thing for the white man and a different thing for the Negro. In constitutional law, the spinelessness of the United States Supreme Court in permitting the judicial nullification of the 14th and 15th amendments was and still is boldly upheld in our few law schools. In medical schools, Negroes were likewise convinced of their inferiority in being reminded of their role as germ carriers. The prevalence of syphilis and tuberculosis among Negroes was especially emphasized without showing that these maladies are more deadly among the Negroes for the reason that they are Caucasian diseases. 
And since these plagues are new to Negroes, these sufferers have not had time to develop against them the immunity which time has permitted in the Caucasian. Other diseases to which Negroes easily fall prey were mentioned to point out the race as an undesirable element when this condition was due to the Negro's economic and social status. Little emphasis was placed upon the immunity of the Negro from diseases like yellow fever and influenza, which are so disastrous to whites. Yet the whites were not considered inferior because of this differential resistance to these plagues. In history, of course, the Negro had no place in this curriculum. He was pictured as a human being of the lower order, unable to subject passion to reason, and therefore useful only when made the hewer of wood and the drawer of water for others. No thought was given to the history of Africa except so far as it had been a field of exploitation for the Caucasian. You might study the history as it was offered in our system from the elementary school throughout the university and you would never hear Africa mentioned except in the negative. You would never thereby learn that Africans first domesticated the sheep, goat, and cow, developed the idea of trial by jury, produced the first stringed instruments, and gave the world its greatest boon in the discovery of iron. You would never know that prior to the Mohammedan invasion about 1000 AD, these natives in the heart of Africa had developed powerful kingdoms, which were later organized as the Songhai Empire on the order of that of the Romans and boasting of similar grandeur. Unlike other people then, the Negro, according to this point of view, was an exception to the natural plan of things, and he had no such mission as that of an outstanding contribution to culture. The status of the Negro then was justly fixed as that of an inferior. Teachers of Negroes in their first schools after emancipation did not proclaim any such doctrine, but the content of their curricula justified these inferences. An observer from outside of the situation naturally inquires why the Negroes many of whom serve their race as teachers, have not changed this program. These teachers, however, are powerless. Negroes have no control over their education and have little voice in their other affairs pertaining thereto. In a few cases, Negroes have been chosen as members of public boards of education and some have been appointed members of private boards, but these Negroes are always such a small minority that they do not figure in the final working out of the educational program. The education of the Negroes then, the most important thing in the uplift of the Negroes, 
is almost entirely in the hands of those who have enslaved them and now segregate them. With miseducated Negroes in control themselves, however, it is doubtful that the system would be very much different from what it is or that it would rapidly undergo change. The Negroes thus placed in charge would be the products of the same system and would show no more conception of the task at hand than do the whites who have educated them and shaped their minds as they would have them function. Negro educators of today may have more sympathy and interest in the race than the whites, now exploiting Negro institutions as educators. But the former have no more vision than their competitors. Taught from books of the same bias, trained by Caucasians of the same prejudices, or by Negroes of enslaved minds, one generation of Negro teachers after another have served for no higher purpose than to do what they are told to do. In other words, a Negro teacher instructing Negro children is in many respects a white teacher thus engaged, for the program in each case is about the same. There can be no reasonable objection to the Negroes doing what the white man tells him to do if the white man tells him to do what is right, but right is purely relative. The present system, under the control of the whites, trains the Negro to be white, and at the same time convinces him of the impropriety or the impossibility of his becoming white. It compels the Negro to become a good Negro for the performance of which his education is ill-suited. For the white man's exploitation of the Negro through economic restriction and segregation, the present system is sound and will doubtless continue until this gives place to the saner policy of actual interracial cooperation, not the present farce of race, racial manipulation in which the Negro is a figurehead. History does not furnish, furnish a case of the elevation of a people by ignoring the thought and aspiration of the people thus served. This is slightly dangerous ground here, however, for the Negro's mind has been all but perfectly enslaved in that he has been trained to think what is desired of him. The quote-unquote highly educated Negroes do not like to hear anything uttered against this procedure because they make their living in this way and they feel that they must defend the system. Few miseducated Negroes ever act otherwise, and if they so express themselves, they are easily crushed by the large majority to the contrary, so that the procession, 
may move on without interruption. The result then is that the Negroes, thus miseducated, are of no service to themselves and none to the white man. The white man does not need the Negro's professional, commercial, or industrial assistance. And as a result of the multiplication of mechanical appliances, he no longer needs them in drudgery or menial service. The quote-unquote highly educated Negroes, moreover, do not need the Negro professional or commercial classes because Negroes have been taught that whites can serve them more efficiently in these spheres. Reduced then to teaching and preaching, the Negroes will have no outlet but to go down a blind alley. If the sort of education which they are now receiving is to enable them to find the way out of their present difficulties.